Welcome to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the love of Jesus to change people's lives. I'm Eric Sintel, and in this interview, I am talking with Joe of the Crisis of Faith podcast with Joe and Drew. And uh, Joe is a theologian. He works at United Methodist Church. He is pursuing a PhD um, and nearly completed it uh, in theology. He knows a lot about the Bible. He grew up Southern Baptist. And yet, um, in a recent episode of his podcast, he talked about how he may not necessarily believe in God. Um, and I thought that was fascinating. So I wanted to invite him on to come talk. And Joe's, you know, just a really good guy, really good, easygoing, easy to talk to, more than willing and happy to, you know, explore complicated ideas and think through them. And um, so I really enjoyed this conversation. And I think we. Um, end up talking about a lot of things that will be really interesting, really useful to you wherever you're at in your faith journey. Um, And in particular, I think we arrive at a place where we figure out to the extent that we can in a one hour conversation, (laughs) you know, how to accept other people um, and to accept that different people believe different things. And that's okay. And that doesn't you know, mean that anyone is particularly right or wrong or going to hell or going to heaven. Um, those are a lot of things above our pay grade and a lot of things that, you know, if we get our theology right, quite frankly, I don't think we need to be uh, super anxious, super worried about. Um, and as our conversa- I think our conversation will help kind of explain what I mean by that, particularly when I get to the end uh, and start talking a little bit about C.S. Lewis and some of his theology. Um, and how that helps me make sense of, you know, someone like Joe, who um, has a different understanding of God than the traditional view, or that you know I might have, or that you might have. So um, let's hear from Joe. All right. Um, so Joe, you host this podcast, uh, Crisis of Faith, with Joe and Drew, um, and I really enjoy the podcast, and I recommend it to people who are going through any kind of faith deconstruction and trying to figure out what they believe and why they believe it um, and trying to navigate that. And you, in a recent episode, you said something that just really struck me, um, you know, and correct me if I misquote you or anything, but I believe you said, you know, I've, I am functionally been an atheist for about 10 years. And I thought that is interesting because not only is Joe, um, hosting this podcast about religion and theology and spirituality, spirituality, but he's also, um, works at a church and he's, you know, yeah, getting right. a PhD in theology. Um, so I really am curious, just how does that work? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is, and I'm, I don't think you misquoted me. I'm sure that I said that, but I don't generally use that term often atheist because um, in some ways I think it's it's just not that meaningful a term um, you know if you were to ask ask somebody like do you believe in God the chances that they would mean in answering that question something similar like they would mean by God something similar to what you would mean in asking the question is, is so slim right <laughs> like, what, what does that even mean? Um, so, I just don't, I, I'm not, atheist is not that helpful a term. 
Um, so I don't generally use it unless I'm trying to be a little cool and cool and edgy, you know. Um, and also, I don't identify with a community of people who, and you know, some atheists would say, well, we're not a community, it's just a lack of belief. But, you know, when you say atheist, you think Richard Dawkins and Marcus Hitchens and, and that kind of, like, I don't Nothing like that. I definitely don't fit in there. Um, so I guess what I mean when I say that is... Um, so I, I grew up with... Um, I grew up in a conservative evangelical background, um, Southern Baptist in, in like rural West Virginia. Uh, and I think I had pretty much picture of what uh, Thomas Ord, Thomas J. Ord calls the uh, the conventional God, as most people say, or he's like, oh no, sorry, it's not as most people say, anyway, <laughs> you can't keep up with, with Thomas yeah. Ord's publishing. Yeah, he publishes um, a book like every six months, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but in one of his more recent books, Open and Relational Theology, uh, he describes what he calls the conventional God terms that he gives to it are this god is unaffected uh or sorry uninfluenced uninfluenced so like transcendent beyond us uh unchanging not not changed by our will uh controlling god is in control of things um he uses the term ultimate germaphobe (laughs) to mean like god doesn't want to be in the presence of impurity and sinfulness um intervening in the sense that God will jump in and help you get a parking space or help your team win the game or, or something more serious. You know, you pray for, for your mother when she's diagnosed with cancer and you expect God to, or you hope that God will intervene in that situation. Um, foreknowing, having knowledge of everything that, uh, everything that will happen in the future. It's already, the future is already mapped out. Uh, and angry, angry about our sinfulness and our bad. So I, I think I had something very much like that picture of God, this conventional God. And, and I don't believe in that God anymore, for sure. Um, almost everything about that picture of God, I'm, I no longer hold. So that entity that I once believed in, I, I'm an atheist with respect to that entity. Um, and... That's not that's not the God of the Bible, I don't think. That that unconventional or that conventional God is not the God of the Bible. But I also don't believe in you know, Yahweh who sits enthroned on Zion and and wins wars for the nation of Israel. I find Yahweh to be an incredibly compelling character. Um, I also find Artemis to be a com- an incredibly compelling character. But I don't she exists in any way other than as an abstraction of certain people's desires and experiences. So I don't believe in Yahweh. I don't believe in the conventional God. Um, and, you know, I'm, I have spent most of my career in progressive Christian churches um, where they don't believe in either of those gods exactly either. Uh, instead, when I talk to folks at my church, about 
say something like, There's an energy that that was at work in the creation of the universe that I feel in me um, when I have a sense of inspiration, and I call that God. Or I when I go out into the woods and take a hike deep in uh, you know in the Allegheny, um, I feel a sense of transcendence, and I call that God. I mean, I think that's a, certainly a fine thing for somebody to think. Um, if if that's the name, and I feel like I feel a sense of transcendence when I'm out in nature. Um, I just don't like that's not the thing to which I have given the name God. So it doesn't naturally um, like that's just not naturally how I would describe that. I describe that as the sense of transcendence. Um, I certainly feel inspiration when I'm writing or when making art, but I describe that as inspiration. I don't, like, it's just, it's not natural for me to, to call that God. I think if that's the label that you give to it, I'm certainly okay with that. Um, and so, what I once believed in and gave the label God to, I no longer believe in, and I haven't found a compelling alternative thing to give that name to. That's what I mean when I say I don't believe in God. No, I do, you know, probably have an experience of a lot of the things that some people say they're pointing to when they use that language. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so like what I hear you saying is um, you're kind of in this in-between state of, you know, what exactly, you know, do I think about God or, you know, what? You know, what do I think about the divine? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, probably, except I don't know. I mean, I'm in an in-between state in the sense that all of us are hopefully growing and changing and, and shifting all the time, and, and I certainly don't think I've arrived at anything. Um, but I don't feel a sense of liminality in the sense that I'm like, oh no, I'm in loose ends without a definite picture of God. I should come up with one. I did feel that for a long time. I think what's shifted, um, the reason that I've, I've started to use language like atheist, even though I don't like the word, um, is that I've felt this way for about 10 years, as I am going to be saying on the podcast. But only recently, have I been able to say, and that's fine. <laughs> like, nothing, um, oddly, nothing about my work is really affected by that. <laughs> my work in the church, my work on the podcast, or teaching theology, um, like, I don't particularly need a concept of God if that is the way to do what I do. And, and to live my life in a way, like, uh, in a meaningful way something that I feel a lack about. Sure. Yeah. Um, I've heard enough atheists say, you know, I, I don't need God for meaning and morality in my life, you know, and to, to understand what you mean, you know, that, um, and so I think whenever Christians 
try to say, oh no, you've got to believe in God because without God, where's your meaning, your purpose, your you know sense of fulfillment? And that's not really as effective an evangelism strategy as they really think because you know people who have particularly people who do consider themselves atheists and are like um you know there's there's no such thing as the divine or supernatural you know that are more on that side of thing side of the spectrum they didn't come to that belief lightly you know they've thought through it and they you know live their lives and find them to be rewarding and fulfilling um or else they would probably come to a different set of beliefs you know so um so i think you know and this is something that tim Mackey recently said on the the bible project podcast that will probably stick with me the rest of my life because i just it just captured it so well you know that if we are going to evangelize or just simply um, talk to people about our faith you know we really should start with jesus you know, we should really start with, you know, this, com- the compelling stories of Jesus and our experience of Jesus. And, and instead of saying, here's this super special book, the Bible that has all the answers. Um, and you know, someone, uh, John Collins, his co-host was like, well, yeah, but the stories of Jesus are in the Bible. And Tim said, but wait, trace it all the way back. You know, the earliest Christians experienced Jesus. They told their story later. Those stories were written down you know, and so, yeah, there might be a few people that they read the Bible and then just, you know, lights, a light shines down and they're Christian. Um, but I don't mean to be flippant about that, but they, you know, they read the Bible and that's what converts them. But most people, and this is my true of my experience, you know, we encounter people who are just so filled with the spirit, who are so compelling. And then we want to know, know why and then we hear their stories of their personal experience and encounters with jesus we hear the stories of jesus you know passed down over you know not just through the bible but for, through sunday school through tradition and we um we come to christ that way so i guess i the question i'm building to here is you know so far we've been talking about god uh, you know god the father it seems and so for you you know how does how do Jesus and the Holy Spirit factor in and does having Jesus as depicted in the gospels provide you with that way of thinking or living that allows you to do your work in the church and not, you know, have this in between state, um, affected. Yeah. Um, so I'm super big fan of Jesus really. (laughs) Um, and you know, I I take Jesus' teaching really seriously and, and the stories of his life and ministry and you know, I try to try to shape my life as a follower of this person and his teaching. Um, and he believed in God, right? He believed in Yahweh <laughs> uh, as described in the Bible, I think, in a in a really literalistic way. Um and like good good on him, you know. Like, I wish I I could. I can't I can't quite get that image in my head because we live in a different world. Um, but yeah, there, there's um I could not do any of the work that I do, and well, I could not do any of the work that I do without Jesus. I don't really need a concept of God to do any of the work that I do. Like, everything that I work on is in some way 
is about Jesus. Um, but I could, I couldn't, I personally, I find much of the meaning in my life, um, not all of it, I don't even know, some of the meaning <laughs> in my life um, is centered on being a follower of Jesus. That's the way that I sort of think through um, a lot of my ethics and a lot of my sort of way of, way of being in the world. Um, of course, you can get on in the world quite well without Jesus. Millions of people do. Okay. So I don't think that that's um, the ground of the meaning. Or at least being a follower of Jesus is a ground, a ground of meaning. And, you know, I have never, um, I have never had much of a theology of the Holy Spirit, um, which is a deficiency in me. Um, that's something I'm wrong about. I, I ought to have a better understanding and notion of the Holy Spirit. It was not important in my tradition. Um, in fact, primary thing that we thought about the Holy Spirit, I think, in our Southern Baptist tradition growing up, was whatever it is, it's not like those Pentecostals. <laughs> right? Um, not the thing that makes you speak in tongues and roll around on the floor like those Pentecostals. Or raise your hand, you know. And that's that's about what our, <laughs> our theology was. Um, so, I, I have an underdeveloped understanding and experience of the Holy Spirit that I think is a deficiency. I could use more of a sense of what that means and how it shapes my life in the world. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, that's uh, awesome that you are candid about that. You know, uh, it's refreshing to hear someone say, um, and I am wrong about that. Uh, I need to think about that more, um, especially in today's world. <laughs> so, you know, I grew up uh, in general Baptist churches, you know, and my family wasn't, you know, the kind that, you know, went to church every Sunday my whole life, but we were kind of in and out of church, you know, we'd go to this church for a while and then we'd kind of fall out of the habit and then we'd go to a different church for a while and then fall out of the habit. And, but when we went to church, it was pretty much always a general Baptist church. And so I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> you know, the, the Holy Spirit is really de-emphasized and at least our experience of the Baptist tradition. Um, and then the Bible is really elevated, you know, it's, and it's almost to the point where the Holy Trinity becomes God, the father, Jesus, the son, and the Holy Bible. <laughs> and, and I think, yeah. And I, again, I'll quote Tim Mackey, you know, he put this so well as well, um, that we kind of have an underdeveloped sense of the Holy Spirit and how it, works or can work in our lives and so then we get really anxious or nervous about describing the bible as both human and divine and we we want inspiration to mean the biblical authors went into a trance and then woke up and said oh look at all these words um and that's according to you know tim maggie other bible scholars it's like that's not what happened you know just if you even just studied the formation of the bible from a historical or anthropological perspective i mean there's human fingerprints all over the process of writing and editing compiling the bible 
And, you know, for Tim Mackey and, and for me at this point, that's not an issue. It's human and divine. So is, we also believe Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Like this shouldn't be a thing, a problem. Um, and then also, you know, if we believe in the spirit, have a more developed sense of the Holy Spirit, well, then why, why would it bother us that, you know, the biblical authors weren't in a trance, but rather we're in communion with the spirit. And then we can also be in communion with the spirit as we read and interpret the Bible as we, you know, go about living our lives in other ways. Um, so I want to ask, you know, do you, at times in our conversation, it almost sounds like you separate the Trinity, you know, um, I don't know if that's a fair statement or description or, you know, but I, yeah, well, like you were, we were talking at the beginning about God and it seemed kind of like focused on God, the father, um, and then, you know, Jesus is really compelling. And then the Holy Spirit is really underdeveloped. And so I guess I'm, I don't know, maybe I projected onto that or misheard something, but what? how do you make sense of the Trinity? <laughs> that, that sums it up, right? I mean, how many books have been written about the Trinity and most of them begin with, and we don't really know what we're talking about. This is mysterious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll tell you the, the thing that I probably ought to say, but I'm unwilling to say, <laughs> um, which is that um, whatever, this is what many of my progressive Christian friends have said, Whatever God is, is relationality, right? At its, at its very core, God is relationality. Well, what you can say then is the relationality itself is God. Hmm. Like, the, the love... Um, so it's another way of saying, I think, that the energy that created the universe and that moves through me is God. Or the transcendence that I feel when I'm out in nature is God. That I feel for my children and for my friends, and that that love itself is God. And again, I want to say, if that is like, if God is the label that you want to give to those senses, that's great. Like, that's that's perfect. It's not a natural label for me. Gotcha. Um, I I I like to say when I'm talking about my love children or my wife or whatever that I love them and that's a perfect enough description for me I don't think I don't need to overlay an extra word God um, I mean you know the Hegelian sense of the Trinity I think I'm very much in line with um, where we as a collective have we humanity have some belief um about ultimate reality or um, or the collective wishes of, of the universe that we have tra- like made transcendent, like the Father, right? We've, we've made um, well, like kind of like uh, the conventional God, right? Mm-hmm. Uninfluenced, controlling, and the ultimate germaphobe up there, like beyond us. And that in the second person of the Trinity, in, in Jesus, we see a picture of like, well, what would that God look like? The 
that transcendent picture that we've put in this guy based on our own um, collective ideals about the best thing in the world, what would that look like if you put some sandals on his feet and, and some dirt under his fingernails? Um, well, here's a, here's a picture. And then, you know, the image of, of the spirit at Pentecost, say, is, um, you know, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, right? And it's this, this weird fire, the thing that Moses notices, right? He's in the middle of the desert. Things are on fire all the time. What he pays attention to and notices is that this bush is burning, but it's not burning up. It's burning, but it's not burning up what it's burning. It's a weird kind of fire, right? Well, you get to Acts chapter 2, uh, at, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the people, well, what happens? This fire lands on their head. It doesn't burn them up. It's burning, but it's not burning up what it's burning. <laughs> and, and it's like divine fire, whatever that transcendent thing that we see a, a recreated image of in Jesus moves into humanity. Um, and so I think, you know, in, in that sense, when I say what, what I have is, I have meaning in my life that doesn't require a transcendent God, because I, the meaning in my life is from raising my children and loving my family and, and doing the, the good work that I do in the world and um, enjoying music and chocolate and good food. Like, it's, that is because God is, is good. Whatever we mean by God in a broad way is present here and now. Like that is, if I have a pneumatology, if I have an understanding of the Holy Spirit, that's it. It's that God is present in us and in the things around us. Yeah. And I think that's the picture of Pentecost. Sure. Yeah, and so what I'm hearing is, you know, for you, you know, like you said there at the end, God is present here now. Um, and if you look, you know, look at Jesus's message in the Gospels, you know, he's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is here, you know, like, and, you know, and uh, yeah, and in Revelation, the image of uh, is of a renewal of the heavens and the earth, you know, not, and, you know, and so I, I promise this is maybe the last time I quote Tim Mackey, but, you know, I, I've, I've heard him say, you know, the, the image of the afterlife in the Bible is not, you know, an escape to heaven or descent to hell, but rather it's a resurrection or renewal of this world. And, um, you know, and I, I keep, and I saw Jerusalem coming mm -hmm. down out of heaven. That's the image. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of argument or a lot of good reason, you know, to hold that view. I know many people would hear that, um, or are hearing this conversation and wondering, well, okay, you're talking about the here and now, but what about heaven? What about hell? You know, what what do you think about that? Or how do you aren't you anxious about that? Um, well, I, I have lots of thoughts about heaven and hell. <laughs> I don't know if that's if you want, if you want to go <laughs> into that. We could spend all day. Um, am I anxious about it? I think is a, a good question. No, in general, I'm not. Um, but that's after decades of unlearning my anxiety about hell. I, I grew up with tremendous amount of anxiety about hell. Um, 
long before I came to sort of not not really believe in something like a transcendent theistic God, um, I just came to understand, you know, Jesus says, Jesus gives us this thought experiment, he says, uh, if your kid asks you for fish sticks for lunch, you're not going to give him a plate full of snakes, right? Um, and then he says, so if you, being an unperfect parent, know how to give your kid a good lunch instead of snakes, shouldn't you expect that God would give you good and good gifts? Right? So Jesus' idea, this is the thought experiment he gives us, is God has to be at least as good a parent as you are. Um, and I, I just came to believe that that's true. Like, I would not torture my children. I don't care how bad they are. I will let them Perhaps I, I will let them often suffer the consequences of their behavior, the natural consequences. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to torture them for all of eternity. I don't care what they do. Uh, I'm not even going to torture them for a moment. I dare say that nobody listening to this podcast would so much as take a cigarette lighter to their child's arm for one second. Right? I sure hope not. And, and I, I sure hope that if you saw someone else do that, you would call CPS immediately. Heavenly Father would burn people alive for all. I just couldn't believe that. I couldn't. I, I just. I can't believe that. So if that's so, I happen to not think that's true. And I've done quite a lot of academic work on this, and, and could spend hours if you wanted to pointing out why that's not the biblical picture either. Um, but I think even if it were, I would just reject that. I because I, I cannot believe in that God, and I don't think that's the God that is revealed in Jesus. I can't imagine. Um, Jesus, who, who says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Um, that, that same Christ, you know, spends his retirement it, it, running this torture chamber. I just, I can't believe that. Um, and so, I don't. Sure. But just like every other, um, every other belief, it's not just a matter of saying, well, I don't believe that, <laughs> right? Um, beliefs have, have phantom pain. It's like, you know, like people who have amputations can still have pain in their limb that is no longer there. Um, and beliefs work like that, too. You can, you can intellectually excuse yourself of a belief and yet still have the emotional reaction to it for many years. And, and I, I find that creeping up in myself. Rarely, rarely these days. Very rarely do I, I have some kind of um, it used to happen a lot more, and I've just spent a lot of time working through it. Um, but no, I don't. I don't believe in hell. Um, not in that sense. Sure. Yeah, and you know, I I can imagine some people listening like, well, Joe is just he really is an atheist, you know. Um, <laughs> and you know, so I just want to say, you know, Christians throughout two thousand years of church history have had diverse beliefs about hell and the afterlife and you know there's at least three or four different um <clears throat> ideas or camps about what hell might be um and all of them have scriptural support <laughs> you can point to verses for all of them um and so you know one one of those uh you know you mentioned jesus and i i agree with you you know the jesus that we see in scripture does not seem like the jesus you know a god who would 
um, eternally torment and punish people, um, no matter what they did or didn't do. And, and yeah, you know, you can quote Jesus talking about Gehenna and talking about, you know, throwing, you know, it's better to throw your right hand or your right eye into the fire than to cause it to sin, you know, and there will be uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth and, you know, so on and so forth. So um, I know you're, you know, as a theologian, as someone who's done a lot of scholarly work and study um, on that, what are your, what's your response? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the, the idea there, again, most of the time, there's actually three words uh, translated as hell in the Bible. None of them have anything to do with the hell that we imagine. The lake of fire and the devil with the pitchfork and eternal conscious torment. There's literally nothing in the Bible that ever suggests in any way that someone will be eternally consciously um, now, Jesus does talk about this place called Gehenna. Um, it turns out Gehenna is a, a real place. You can go visit it today. It's on the southern slope of Jerusalem. Um, and, you know, Israeli hipsters live there. And <laughs> here it has cool coffee shops. Um, <laughs> in the ancient world, um, there was a, a, a Uruguayan god possibly a god named Moloch, although we don't really know much about the about Canaanite religion. Um, it's possible also that this is referring to the god Baal, who you get in the Bible, and that the type of sacrifice made to this god is called a Moloch sacrifice, so it's unclear, but for now we'll just say Moloch is the name of the god. And um, So in the valley, Gehenom means the valley of Hinnom. Ge means valley. Um, so in the Valley of Hinnom, which belonged to the family named Hinnom, um, Moloch, the god Moloch, had an altar there, uh, and the Moloch worship included child sacrifice in the fire. People were, were sacrificing their, their infants to Moloch or to Baal uh, in, in fire. And it's a, it's a famous place in the Hebrew scriptures because uh, the king Ahaz sacrificed his child to Moloch um, when he was hoping for, he, he was wanting to stop um, the Assyrians from invading Israel because Yahweh had said that the Assyrians would invade Israel, and so you can't pray to Yahweh, and so you have to, the ones you're going to pray to are going to pray to this other god. Um, and so he offers his, his infant child um, to Moloch in this pagan ritual, and uh, so it becomes a place of desolation in Jeremiah around the 29th, 30th chapter. There's these condemnations of the Valley of Hinnom. It's for this reason. Uh, and so Jesus is saying it is, it is Jesus's foil to the kingdom of God, right? This is the Valley of Death, literally. Um, it's the Valley of, and it's the Valley of Fire because you make sacrifices in um, and so, yeah, it, when he says, like, it's better, if, if your eye is going to cause you to sin and to um, exclude yourself from the kingdom of God that I'm talking about, it's better to cut it out and throw it in that valley down there that you can look at. Um, he's not talking about Dante's hell. There is no picture of that 
Um, there is, you know, in the book of Revelation, in fact, hell, if you think of hell as the lake of fire, not the case. Hell gets thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 19. Um, in other words, hell gets burned, hell itself gets burned up. Hmm. Um, just the, the picture that we have of hell as eternal conscious torment simply is not scriptural. So I would reject it even if it were. I want to be clear about that. On on the grounds that I can't believe in a God like that. Um, I can't, and I can't believe that a God like that would have any relationship to Jesus. Um, because of what I know of Jesus. But, unfortunately, it's just not scriptural. It's not in the Bible. Um, when we're talking about the images that we have for hell in the Bible are about um, the things that destroyed the things in life that are worthy of destruction and you know uh, so that word Gehenna uh, it's used I want to say 13 times in the New Testament something like that 11 12 13 uh, all of them every every use is on the lips of Jesus except for one and one is from uh, James Jesus brother in his in his epistle and what he says Our, our tongue is like a fire set ablaze by Gehenna, by the fires of, of this you know, place mm. of desolation and destruction and evil. Um, in other words, James, hell is a thing that's in you, right? It's the thing inside of you that needs to be burned up. Um, and and that's, that's the image that Jesus gives, I think, in Matthew 13 as well. You know, the, the wheat and the chaff. So, right, he says the wheat and the tares grow up together. The wheat and the weeds they grow up together, and at the end of the age, you can't. There's no way you could pull out. You could go through and pluck up the wheat and use it. Away. So you just at the end of the age, you harvest it all, and then you can sort through it. You'll put the grain in the barn, and you'll put the weeds into the fire, right? The pit of fire. Now, we think of the pit of fire as the literal description of hell, right? But what about the barn? barn heaven? Like, why don't we have a literal description of heaven as a barn? If that's, it's not, it's, it's part of the metaphor. That's exactly what you do with weeds. You burn them up. You burn the things that aren't serving you. And that's the picture that Jesus is giving. He's saying, look, there's there are parts of you that are not fit for the, the kingdom that I'm bringing into this world. And those parts need to be cut out, burned up, destroyed with <laughs> this terrible yeah, that's um, that's fascinating. I have never thought of that parable that way, and so I actually just pulled it up and you know rereading. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, um, thirteen verse thirty. Let both grow together until the harvest. You know, the weeds and the good seed or the good wheat. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. And, I mean, those are two great points. One is, you know, if we reread this after what you just said, and so, yeah, it's definitely possible to read this as talking about within myself, there's good and bad, not as this group, us Baptists, we're good to go, we're the wheat, and then those people over there are the chaff and they're going to burn. 
And then the second point is that is really interesting how we we try to take from this a literal picture of hell, but don't even think about heaven as a barn. You know, that's really interesting. Um, and I think that speaks a lot to kind of in a roundabout way, speaks a lot to what we've been talking about. Um, you know, I I know some people would hear you say, well, I just I even if eternal conscious torment was clearly depicted in scripture, I would not believe in that God. I would reject that based on Jesus, based on theological reasons, um, life experience. And uh, not to mention, you know, I'm sure there, I know there are some church fathers and, you know, church theologians throughout history who have said, similarly rejected that idea. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis rejected that idea. And yet some people would say, well, wait, wait, if you don't believe this thing, how can you call yourself a Christian? Right. And, and I would like to say, well, you know, maybe um, the work of the Spirit look, sometimes looks like I can't believe in a God who would eternally consciously torment people. Um, and I'm investigating that, deconstructing that, and I don't see evidence for it in Scripture. And I see evidence, you know, for, you know, I, I read this in light of Jesus, and, and if I believe Jesus is the fullest revelation of God, well, then how does that affect how my, I understand this? And and again, you know, the Holy Trinity, we believe, is, uh, Christians believe, is God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Bible, right? And so, like, you know, I would like, I, I've come to a place where, you know, I believe the Bible is human and divine. I believe, you know, the Spirit works in us and can in many cases lead us to view the Bible differently or view certain doctrines very differently than we used to, you know, and that's not necessarily falling away from faith. That's not necessarily catering to culture or what have you, but maybe that's the work of the spirit actually. Um, and you know, if I, I can't wrap my head around this, but if somebody is like, oh yeah, that eternal conscious torment just really sets me on fire for God and I love God so much because he's so righteous and just, you know, if that works for you and helps you love God better than believing in annihilation or the C.S. Lewis version and the great divorce, okay, fine, you know, because the point of this is not to pass the doctrine quiz. The point of this is to love God and love others. Yeah. Um, Can I say two things about that? Absolutely. Yeah, please. I think, um, to your point, Jesus goes around saying things like, you have heard it said, and what he means is in the Torah, right? Mm -hmm. In the Bible, you have heard that X. But I tell you, something different, right? Um, which means I think there's a fundamental choice to make about what it means to be a Christian, and I, I can't give you a good reason for this. Right? But you do have to just come down on a side about this. Whatever side you want to come down on, it's fine with me. Um, I'm not saying you, Eric. I'm yeah, the royal you. <laughs> uh, uh, that you can, you can fundamentally say First and most important thing for me is the Bible. I'm just going to believe whatever the Bible says. It's going to be really tricky. There are places where you have to figure out, you know, things that, that are quite different where you're going to go. Um, or you can fundamentally say, I believe Jesus. And, and whatever, if that means I have to subordinate 
the Bible to Jesus. At times you must, because he says, you've heard it said, but I say this. Um, that, that where like, the picture of God that is revealed in Jesus uh, is different from the picture of God that I see in the Bible, I subordinate the Bible to Jesus. Um, like those are that's just a fundamental choice you have to make. I that's the one I make. I'm going to go with Jesus. Um, but you could very well say I'm not. I'm going to you know I'm going to instead go with um, what I see in Hebrew evidence that looks different than what God against what I see in Jesus, and that's you know that's just where you are. Yeah. Um, so it's it's just it's a choice that you have to make about how you're going to approach how you're doing Christianity. And I think that we actually see that choice being made in the Bible um, in a really interesting way. So, um, Acts 15, the, the Council of Jerusalem, is the first time that the church kind of gathers to say, we've got a problem that we got to figure out. And what's the problem? All the first followers of Jesus are Jews, right? Jesus is a Jew. His mother is a Jew. You know, he keeps kosher. He goes to the temple. Jesus is not interested in starting a new religion. Um he expects that his followers will continue to go to the temple and make sacrifices even after he's dead. That's why he says things like this. When you go to the temple and make sacrifices, if you have beef with your brother, first go and deal with that and then go make your sacrifices. Um, because he expects them to continue to do that. He expects them to all be Jewish. He, you know, he says to the Syrophoenician woman, I come from the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These are my people. Right? This is what Jesus expects. Um, and it's, of course he does. He's a Jew. And, and we know, I mean, the scriptures say that these are the people of God, right? That's why we have the um, sign of circumcision. It marks out the people of God from elsewhere in the world. And so you get to, what happens is, all of a sudden, somehow, some work of the Spirit, maybe, whatever, uh, all these non-Jews start to believe Jesus. These Gentiles are like, I want to worship Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I'm compelled by the teachings of Jesus. And the church goes, uh, we don't do that. <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's counterintuitive because now we think, well, maybe a Jew and a Christian? Hmm, I don't know. But in, in their world, the question was, is it possible to be a Christian and not be a Jew? That doesn't make any sense to us. What would that mean to you know, be a follower of the Jewish Messiah and not be a Jew? And so, like, that's what the New Testament is about. That's why there's so much fighting in the New Testament about circumcision. It's like, can you be a Christian and not first become a Jew? Um, and the clear answer to that, if you read the, the Old Testament, is no. No, these are the people of God. If you want to join the people of God, you get circumcised, you eat kosher, you know, you go to the temple, you, you become Jewish. And what Paul says is, and no, sorry, it's Peter, who in Acts 15 stands up to the council and says, look, look around you. Our experience tells us that there are people here who are doing the thing, who, are, who have faith in Christ, who are doing the work of the kingdom. Who are we to tell them no? You know, I think that, I think about that in like, you, know, you and I are both part of United Methodist Church, and I don't know how your church feels about this, so might get, you, you might have to edit this out. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're right now in the middle of just raging battles in the United Methodist Church about can um, 
LGBTQIA folks be in full membership in life of the church? Um, can they be ordained as pastors? Can they celebrate their marriages and so on and so forth? Um, and what I want to say when we met at the council is, well, look around you. We're already here. There's no us that does not include queer folks in the church. And so I guess so, right? That's what Peter says. I guess I guess it's possible to be a Gentile and a follower of Jesus. Because look, there are Gentiles who are following Jesus, who have received the Holy Spirit, who are acting out the gifting of, of the Spirit working in the community. That must be the case. And I want to, like, I think that's right. And so what they're doing, what Peter is doing, and Paul is doing in these letters, is that they're, they're seeing that their experience is different from the Supreme what the Bible has taught them. And so they're following the example of Jesus to say, I I read it to be said, but I say something different. Um, I think that's, that's the call of Peter. Yeah, that's so well said. And I think, you know, such good uh, illustrations and, and examples there. You know, I would agree with you. You know, the Old Testament is um, not ambiguous at all. You know, if you want to be part of God's people, you get circumcised, you follow dietary laws. Um, and then Acts 15 and the Council of Jerusalem just totally turns that on its head. You know, they, and like you said, based on their experience of what the Spirit was doing in them, through them, and among those around them. Um, and then you, you know, reflect back on uh, Jesus, and I'm sure Peter and the other disciples reflected back on their experience with Jesus it's like you know he was awfully inclusive like he didn't <laughs> you know he didn't say well you're a tax collector you're a sinner you know get away from me but he dined with those people um you know he welcomed those people in to um into a relationship so yeah I think that's we really well said there. like mm -hmm. Paul and Peter and, and the apostles model this radical change they say look um because of what Christ has made um, we're, we have to spend the rest of our lives figuring out what has to change. What we used to believe, what is in the scripture, that has to change. right? And we go, oh yeah, yeah, good job, good job, we applaud that, and then it stops. right? It stops the moment that, that we stop writing, like that we close the canon. No! Like, if we're, are we going to just freeze in time, the apostles, and say whatever they said, that's it? Or are we going to follow their example of rethinking the world based on the revelation of God and Jesus? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, and I agree, you're, you're absolutely right. We, it's like we say, well, they, they were, uh, you know, Paul literally had this vision on the Damascus Road, you know, Peter, you know, literally knew Jesus. And, you know, so they can do this, but then, you know, who are we to do this? And that's, you know, it kind of ties back into that underdeveloped, idea of the Holy Spirit and what it, how it functions. Um, you know, I've actually been thinking about this recently, you know, if you were to expand the canon, you know, who would you include? <laughs> you know, what, you know, what authors would you include? And, you know, I, I would, I would vote for Martin Luther King Jr. I would vote for C.S. Lewis, you know, picking some of their writings and adding it to it. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many thousands of years will have to go by before some church council agrees to do that. Um, it's definitely not going to happen anytime soon. But yeah, I think that's such a, a great point. You know, will we freeze um, 
interpreting scripture with the uh, the New Testament, or will we, you know, recognize that the Spirit does continue to operate in, in us and in our world? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, there's um, thinking about the canon. There's the, the famous passage of Second uh, Timothy, Second Timothy three sixteen. Right? Says, All Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, and is useful for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Um, well, a couple of things to note about that. First, the, like, what would he even mean by scripture, right? Mm-hmm. He's writing the New Testament. So if he means anything, he has to mean, uh, he has to mean the Torah and the prophets. Um, so like, where do we, where do we come up with what is scripture? story of politics and you know there's a lot that goes into the making of the canon sure um, but the word literally in Greek is just writing all writing hmm. uh, and in Greek the language you don't always need um, verbs of being so in fact the word is just in uh, in this you have to supply it somewhere in English to make the sentence make sense um, but you can say, it's, it's a perfectly reasonable translation to say, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, reproof, and correction. Or, you can just as, as validly translate that. All writing inspired by God is useful for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. In other words, any, anything, any written thing, or I mean, you might just say any word, insofar as they're useful for teaching and training in righteousness, they are inspired by God, right? Um, that's a perfectly valid translation of that, of that passage, and I, I, think, that's, I think that's right. right? Hmm. Do I think, you know, based on analogy, do I believe in God? Well, I don't know. But do I believe things are divinely inspired? Yeah, sure. I don't know what other kind of inspiration there is. If there's, you know, if some if something is moving in the world and doing good in the world, like that's inspired by something. There's something there's something at work there. Uh, and if that's not the work of God, I don't know what is. Yeah. Great point. Um, yeah, that's pretty mind blowing to learn that that scripture could be translated in a different way that puts the emphasis in a different place. Um, you know, and that fits really well with my view of that the Bible is both human and divine, you know, because as I'm reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you know, there are parts of it that I'm like, okay, this is so human, you know, like this is so clearly the ancient Israelites trying to construct, you know, a nationalist literature for their country or just trying to, you know, we don't understand germ theory. So we're trying to figure out what caused this plague. It must have been Yahweh and his displeasure with us, you know. Um, and that's just so, that's so similar to the Iliad and to Greek mythology. It's like, this has to be human. But then the message underneath that often is, you know, and so, you know, God is a, actually merciful and, you know, he, um, and God, uh, you know, 
worship God alone. And it's like, okay, well, there maybe is some inspiration, some divine. And, uh, and so to, you know, reinterpret or retranslate that verse, all writing inspired by God is useful, you know, fits really well with that. So I'm, I'm going to start, um, you know, whenever I talk about that verse with people or anytime I read or encounter that verse, I'm going to retranslate it in my mind. I think, (laughs) so thank you for that. Um, so Joe, I want to kind of, you know, we're getting close to an hour and I don't want to take up too much of your morning and, um, but I want to just kind of wrap, uh, things up, I think with, uh, referring to science, Mike, uh, you know, science, are you familiar with science, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. And so science, Mike, um, is, you know, he was the former co-host of the Literatures podcast, you know, for those who may not be familiar, um, he's written a couple books now, but he, um, is this really interesting guy because he was very devout Baptist, then became an equally devout atheist, and now has swung back to, um, I'm not sure if I believe in God, but I'm at church every Sunday, and I'm, you know, writing and speaking in Christian circles to encourage people and, and help uplift people. Um, and he says he's had a mystical uh, spiritual experience where Jesus spoke to him, like he heard the audible voice. He went to the doctor. He did not have a brain tumor, you know. He, and so he, you know, he's this really interesting guy in that, you know, and he's kind of led me to think, well, you know, what, you know, he he will tell you himself. I'm not sure if I believe in God, but my pastor will tell you he's at church every Sunday and he loves people and he's serving God, and so that's led me to think, well is that okay? I think so. You know, I, I think so. Um, and I have to thank, you know, C.S. Lewis for that, you know, his depiction and, um, toward the end of his final book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, the last battle, you know, he chose this, um, you know, I'm really condensing, but he shows this character who is definitely not someone who worships Aslan, you know, he worships the false God. And yet, he and Aslan are reconciled and the guy's very confused. Like, wait a minute, Aslan, like I've spent my whole life hating your guts and like swearing to oppose you. And Aslan's like, well, yeah, I know, but you didn't realize it. You were actually, you know, your state of heart was such that you were actually in alignment with me the whole time, (laughs) you know? And so that's something that's really, um, that and the great divorce, you know, have really, been formative for me because it's like you know science mike joe others you know if your state of heart is aligned with god and who am i to say it is or isn't you know i'm not god you know that really uh allows me to to not be anxious you know for you or for science mike or for you know the billions of other people who aren't christian or don't identify as christian the way i might have been you know 10 years ago um, so I just wanted to kind of wrap things up and conclude with that. Um, so, but, uh, but Joe, I'll give you the final word. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know? And also, you know, how can our listeners connect with you online or support, you know, what you're doing in your ministry and work? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so Crisis of Faith with Joe and Drew, you can find it on um, iTunes and Spotify and many places you find podcasts. Um, give us a listen. Follow us on or Facebook uh, it's just Instagram.com slash Christ of Faith Facebook.com slash Christ 
Um, and we'd love to hear from you if you want to send us a question, if you're interested in something maybe that I said on this podcast and uh, want us to talk about it on that podcast. Um, it's crisisoffaithpodcast.com. There's a big send us a message button right in the middle. Uh, so you can drop us a little voicemail and we'll, we'll play it on the air and talk about it when we get it done. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Great. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation too, and and I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Joe. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks a lot. We'll do it again. Okay. Really fascinating conversation there. Lots of really interesting food for thought. Um, I will go on record as saying I also do not believe in the conventional or traditional God that Joe described at the beginning and that Thomas J. Ord describes in uh, most several of his recent books, but in particular the book about open and relational theology. Um, I actually now identify as an open and relational theist, um, and I may record a podcast at some point in the future describing what that means. Um, But for now, suffice to say that I am very comfortable with Joe or myself or anyone saying, you know, the God that maybe was taught to me in those, you know, very fundamentalist tradition or the Sunday school, very simplified, watered down version, I don't believe in that God anymore. And I think Paul in the scriptures and the New Testament tells us that's okay. You know, I can't remember exactly which verse it is, but, you know, he says, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child, talked like a child. And I matured and you sometimes hear people preach on that and say we should be maturing in our faith and I would argue that you know Joe in abandoning that uh, view of a traditional conventional God and by conventional traditional really we just don't have better words to describe that uh, depiction of God but you know to say that you know to move away from that view of God as this um, wrathful angry judgmental unmovable transcendent God is really I would argue uh, a maturation of faith a development and a growth of faith into a more complex more nuanced uh, more scripturally based theologically sound understanding of God and there are all kinds of different versions of that Um, like I said I the open and and relational theology of Thomas J. Ord and, and several others makes a lot of sense to me it fits scripture well I think it fits life experience well um, and so I ident- I've come to identify with that, and I will record a future podcast explaining that more. Um, but there are many different ways people might view God. Um, and I really think, you know, whichever way helps you to love God most and love others most, um, that's what you should believe. Um, like I said in the podcast, I can't wrap my mind around eternal, eternal conscious torment or penal substitutionary atonement, helping someone to love God more and love others more than other views might, but that's okay. I don't have to. If that works for you, believe that. Um, But, you know, it's not a heresy to believe in, say, just regular substitutionary atonement or Christus Victor or even moral exemplar theory uh, of atonement. It's not a heresy to believe in, you know, a God who's not angry and wrathful and just waiting to just smite you, um, you know, and if it is, well, then uh, there are a lot of Christians throughout history uh, that, including heroes of the faith, you know, people we look up to, 
people whose books we read, whose uh, words we study, that are heretics, apparently. Uh, so the Christian faith has a lot of diversity in its beliefs and that are all still within orthodoxy. Um, you know, there are multiple views of just about everything <laughs> in Christianity, and and they all fit within the, the broader umbrella of orthodoxy. You know, they're not heresies, but they're different theories, different opinions about complicated theological matters and conversations um, and topics. You know, at the end of the day, um, we're all just doing our best to figure out the divine to figure out and wrap our heads and our hearts around something that is ultimately incomprehensible. <laughs> you know, we do our best and we come up with metaphors and we, and we try to figure out uh, a system, systematic theology that helps us to love God and love others, you know, and you may get some of it wrong, you may get some of it right, and that's okay because we have grace and God loves us no matter what. That's the kind of God I believe in. Thank you for listening and God bless.